This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book. Our covering title is Christian Fundamentals and the subject we are considering during this present series is entitled What is Man? And this is number two of that series. It is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you would care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read Proverbs the 8th chapter. This chapter, Proverbs the 8th chapter, divides itself practically into two parts. Down to about verse 21, it is moral teaching. And then after that, it takes you right back to the beginning. You notice how we read, I was set up from everlasting from the beginning, or ever the earth was. And notice the whens that come, when there were no depths. Verse 25, before the mountains were settled. Verse 26, while as yet. And again verse 27, 28, 29, when he prepared the heavens, when he set the compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened. All this going back right to the very beginning. Notice particularly when it says the highest part of the dust of the world. You may say that's a little bit of poetry, but it's a good deal of truth. Have you ever stopped to think why you call the ground the ground? Don't you see it's a part of the verb to grind and the ground we walk upon and provides all that we need to live upon is simply the ground up rocks that form the basis of it all. Fancy going right back before ever that terrific action took place to give us that depth upon which we live. Now why is it saying all that? Well, we read on. Rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Look at the sweep. It goes back to geological ages before ever the dust of the earth was made, and even then, before there wasn't a man created, he was rejoicing in the habitable parts of the earth, and his delights were with the sons of men. Because you cannot say that before the mountains have brought forth, and before there were any depths, that that's only just when Adam was made. This goes right back before Adam. And that leads us, of course, to our thought that we've tried to express that there would be no Bible, would there, if there hadn't been man? There would have been no revelation of God as we understand it if there hadn't been man. We don't want to overemphasize man, but we want to remember where he comes in the scheme of things. When it mentions here the habitable earth, that is a word that has to be watched. I'll give you the two equivalents. The Hebrew word is tebel, T-E-B-E-L, and the New Testament equivalent is the oikalmeni, and they both refer to a limited part of the earth's surface. You'll read in Job about someone being driven out of the tebel, as though it was a part of the earth from which he could be expelled. And when we read in Hebrews chapter 2, he hath not given to the angels the world to come whereof we speak. 
That is the Tihli Oikabani, this limited prophetic earth. And all the time this one, who is spoken of as being there at the beginning of creation itself, has been looking down the age to the coming of that man, who in that sphere was created in the image and likeness of God. That's the wonder of it. And so when we turn to the first chapters of the book of Genesis, as we must now, we shall see that it practically, the whole of this chapter is leading step by step to the creation of Adam. If you were to pick up, say, a biography of Abraham Lincoln or William Shakespeare, you'd be rather staggered to read the first chapter, the geological history of the Niagara Falls, wouldn't you? Well, why start right back there? And yet when we're going to have the advent of man only about, what, 6,000 years ago, according to the Bible chronology, it doesn't start 6,000 years ago. It doesn't start with any locality here. It goes right back to the beginning. It doesn't tell you when that was, but it's vast enough in its sweep. This is all to introduce that man. And then we have the moment when there was a catastrophe brought about as far as we interpret it by divine judgment. And then comes the present six-day recreation of the earth for that man. Every movement is waiting for that man. The subdivision of night and day is waiting for that man. For we are constituted as creatures that naturally fall into the group that need night and day. No mistake on the part of God was all beforehand. Then we get a limited firmament because of what was going to take place when the battle of light and darkness, good and evil, was to be fought out on our little sphere. Then we have let the dry land appear. There it was, getting ready for man. And man doesn't come till the sixth day. And it's all leading step by step to him. So that we shall never understand the teaching of scripture or the answer to the question, what is man? Unless we associate man immediately with this mighty purpose of God that is only hinted at, parts of which we glimpse, some of them which hold our heart in thrall, but we have to nevertheless say we don't know why it was begun and we have no idea where it will lead us to in the end except we trust our God and Father that it will be all in harmony with his wonderful character and one thing is going to last when everything else passes away. You remember the Apostle says, now these abide. Our authorised version says, these abide it. I think there's a bit of a grammatical split there even though it's the authorised version. Someone who commented already says, doth they? Well, you can't say that. These abide. What? Faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. So that goes on when all these others fail. So we're in good hands. Well, now this evening, we're going to turn our attention to these chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, because we must begin there to get this scriptural start of the answer to our question, what is man? In the first chapter, we have in verse 26, that sudden stop, the breaking of the ordinary sequence of the narrative, 
It doesn't say, let the earth produce men. It doesn't say, let there be men. See, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth produce it, it did. Let us make men. There's a conference, and there is a definite stop and a halt. This is a different being to the rest. Let us make man. And then we have the fact that he was created in verse 27. When you come to the second chapter, the making of that man is given in detail. In the first chapter, it's simply the statement that he was going to be so, and it was. In chapter 2, the Lord God formed man. As the potter uses the clay, the word is, out of the dust of the ground. You remember, in Proverbs, before he had made the highest part of the dust of the ground. The one who knew what man was going to be made from was delighting in the fact that here was all the material ready. Not, of course, we imagine God mixing it up in a childish way. But it's good for us to recognise that every part of the body that we possess is extracted from a few inches of this earth's soil and crust. Well, then we have in the first chapter, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And if that were all we had, they were created on the spot like that. Second chapter comes along and tells us, no, God is not dealing with an automatic machine. He's not dealing even with the highest order of the animal world. Because as far as we know, when Adam surveyed the dominion that was given to him, and all the animals were brought before him, they were all in pairs. And he looked about him. And by looking about him, he became conscious that he was alone. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Why did God make that difference? Well, he was dealing with a moral creature, not merely automatically giving him these things straight off. There's a reason for it, because the second chapter is the moral chapter. The second chapter is in the Garden of Eden. The second chapter is with that temptation. The second chapter is where man is being put to the test. Not so in the first chapter, you see. And so we've got, in the first chapter, let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. In the second chapter, instead of the dominion, there's an exercise of authority at least, for the Lord God brought before Adam the animal world that was put under his dominion and whatever Adam named them, that was the name thereof. So that was showing that he had a rule and he had an intelligence and he was to be trusted in that sense. And then the story changes, of course, to chapter 3, which we mustn't take even a thought of this evening. Well, now I think we must come back to chapter 1 and concentrate our attention upon the opening statements that we have here. Verse 26. By the way, there are some folks who believe and teach that Genesis 1 is one creation that took place of one who was called Adam, and Genesis 2 is another creation that took place of another Adam a long time afterwards. Well, if you've only got to look at chapter 5, uh, when you read... This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day that they were created. Well, that's not quoting chapter 2. That's quoting chapter 1. 
So the Adam of chapter 1 is the one who is here, who gave birth to, or became the father of Cain and Abel and Seth, and right the way down into New Testament genealogy. And of course, when you come to the New Testament references to Adam, he is the image of God. At the same time, he's the one who was made a living soul. And so, it's very evident that we've got two records of the one event. You can get something of the same idea when you read about the ark. In the first statement to Noah, all that he was told is the animals should go into the ark in twos. But when the moment came for them to be gathered into the ark, then there is the added explanation that the clean animals go in by sevens. Well, there's no contradiction. They still went in in pairs. But when the moment came, the added instruction is given. So we get chapter 1 in the large, chapter 2 in the detail. Now let's come a little bit further. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There is a figure of speech which you'll find useful in reading some parts of the New Testament which is called hen diadis. Hen diadis is simply saying one by means of two. Uh, there's a good illustration which is a hen diatris, one by means of three. When our Saviour is reported to have said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it is perfectly true that he is the way, that's one thing, and the truth, that's two things, and the life, that's three. But what he actually said is, I am the true and living way. And you can get the same set out in Hebrews when it says we draw near to God by a new and living way. You couldn't say we draw near to God by a way, a new and a life, you see. So when we come back to Genesis, there's every probability that instead of reading it as we have in our authorised version, we should get the intention of this passage in our own language better if we said, let us make man in the likeness of our image. The likeness of our image. The word likeness, the root of the word is T-S-E-L, cell. The word likeness is the word selem, and practically every occurrence of it after this, it is translated a shadow. A shadow. The likeness is a shadow. And the Apostle Paul, who knew his Bible, when he was writing the epistle to the Hebrews, he spoke about the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image. Have you got it? The shadow of the image. Of course, that's raising a question. Who is the image mentioned here. Who is the image of God? How could Adam be a shadow of the image of God? Well, you know the New Testament has answered that. We read in the epistle to the Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And Adam was created as a shadow of Christ who is the image of the invisible God. You find other figures which do not use the word image which come much to the same thing. He was the form 
of God. Or, we read, he was the express image of his person. All those piled together, you see. Here's Adam, placed upon the earth. And the peculiar emphasis here is that he was, first of all, to shadow forth, very limited, of course, the one that was to come. Now, that necessitates that we must, even though we think we know it, we must turn to 1 Corinthians 15, just to see the way in which the Apostle has introduced this into that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. Adam is spoken of, first of all, in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now I think it's very necessary to call another stop here, because we can misunderstand this passage. Lifting it out of its context, ignoring any comment that may be made elsewhere, we can make this to mean absolutely unrestricted universalism. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, that's the end of the story. But you see, we've got to watch our step, and I'm going to ask you to turn for a moment to Romans, the ninth chapter. No, I'll ask you to turn to the 11th chapter first. The 11th chapter of Romans. Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As concerning the gospel, their enemies, but touching the election, their beloved. There you are. We can prove from that that all Israel shall be saved. Yes, but brother, uh, what do you mean by all Israel? I mean every single individual that is descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I see. But you know what you've done, brother, don't you? You've read Romans 11 before you read Romans 9. And that's what we're doing all the time in our arguments in the Scriptures. God himself has given us an explanation and we've avoided it. So shall we look at Romans 9 and see what all Israel means? Verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Why, there you are. Chapters 9, 10 and 11 are a complete section, beginning with this fact that they are not all Israel who happen to be of Israel. What do you mean by that? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac, that was one of the sons of Abraham. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is. That is to say, you don't understand what I mean by saying Isaac. So he says, that is. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for a seed. Counted for a seed. Well, now you've only got to retranslate that Israel to all mankind, and you still say this, that they are not all in Adam, that are of Adam. There are many that are descended physically from Adam, who were never counted for a seed. And it's the seed that matters, that was in Adam. It was the seed that was trapped by the tempter. It's the seed that the Redeemer comes to redeem. So let's watch our step and get the guidance of Scripture. Now then, we put it this way. As sure as you're in Adam, 
you'll die. But as sure as you're in Christ, you'll be made alive. And that's the way in which he's arguing. Because he's not talking about the generality of people, everybody. He speaks about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. What an unsaved man who never heard of Christ, he doesn't fall asleep in Christ. And Christ is the first fruits of those that sleep. The first fruits. And so we don't notice that. Well, that shows you that Adam comes into the story of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15. Then we turn the page and we pick it up again. It says in verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. You see? Paul had never heard about the two creations and the two Adams. He mixes them all up in 1 Corinthians 15. The man who's created in the image of God is likened to the Adam who was made a living soul. The one in chapter 1, the one in chapter 2. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a life-giving or quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Well, there you've got chapter 2 again. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. There you're back again to chapter 1 of Genesis. So you see, this emphasis upon Adam and his creation and the purpose, his shadowing, is there. Then if you'll turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, you'll see that this shadowing is picked out by the apostle from another point of view. Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And then the emphasis is not the first man and the last man, or the first man and the second man, as in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the one man that's lifted out each time. If you'll notice, uh, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that are not sinned after the civilization of Adam's transgression, who is the figure, the shadow of him that was to come. And then it emphasizes the one man that brought judgment and the one man that brought salvation. It only shows you then, at least it stresses to us, that a person who sets aside Genesis 1 and 2 and says you cannot believe Genesis 1 and 2 today to be anything except a bit of folklore that's come down the ages. Quite interesting, of course, but that's all. Well, what are you going to do with Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15? You're going to set that aside as folklore. If you do, you've set aside the whole scheme of redemption and abolished the hope of immortality. They stand or fall together. Just the same as those folks who glibly say they're only concerned in the simple gospel, John 3.16, and they have no place for argument as to the five books of Moses. Forgetting that John 3.16 commences with the word for and links it with as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This book stands or falls together. And the story of Adam is intricately interwoven in the scheme of redemption. So we now have 
this thought that Adam is a shadow. In the Second Corinthians, chapter 4, you'll see another allusion to this fact of the image. In the end of chapter 3, it says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image. This image coming in from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. And then presently, verse 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, that's the next chapter, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in unto them. So the stress there is the image. And then you will remember that although man fell, the image wasn't lost. It was defaced and defiled, but it wasn't lost. Because after the terrible statements made concerning man that brought about the flood, when Noah came out and God gave him a new set of laws, he said, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So there it still persists. And even up to the time of the writing of the epistle by James, he speaks about man being made in the similitude of God. So it wasn't merely a moral likeness, it wasn't a physical likeness, it was there he was put to be a type and a shadow of him that was to come. Now we come back again to Genesis 1 to see the other word. The word, not merely the word likeness, but the word image. And uh, I've already drawn your attention before this that the word image and the word Adam are derived from the same root word. DM in Adam and DM in Debus meaning the image. Now when we read, for instance, in the book of Daniel, that Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and what he dreamt was a forecast of the Gentile dominion that would descend from him. And he was told, thou art the head of gold. He didn't go like this. And see, nobody, nobody dreams that Gentile dominion looks like a figure made of metals. It's only that it represents in a symbolic form. And there's no idea of Adam looking like him, who was the image of the invisible God. He just set him forth in symbol form. Then the next thing is that this image is expressed by the word dominion. It's got a meaning. It's got an intention. And that is what we read in the next statement in Genesis 1. And let them have dominion. Now this word dominion, of course, meets us in uh, different parts of the scriptures. We get it in Psalm 8, you remember that passage? When he's given, crowned with glory and honour, one of the side lights on let him have dominion, crowned with glory and honour, and given dominion over the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, anything that passes through the paths of the seas. 
when that's retranslated into spiritual terms in the New Testament, it's all things put under his feet, not sheep and oxen, but principality and power and throne and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. That's the shadow, that's the substance. The one, on purpose, in a limited sense, foreshadowing the other in its vastness. And then there's another feature that I think is wise for us to remember. And it's wise for me to remember that our clock stopped too, I think. I began to think I was getting on nicely. Um, the word subdue it. It says in verse 28, and, the, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Now, both those words need care. Replenish is used again in the ninth chapter of Genesis, if you'll notice. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. One of the indications that Noah is a type of the second Adam. There's your first Adam. Here's Noah, the type of the second Adam, coming out into a different world and starting afresh. Of course it was just as bad as before, but in type the two go together like that. So there's no doubt in connection with Noah that the earth did need replenishing and as the same word is used in Genesis 1, it's one of those indications that it needed replenishing from another flood and a vaster flood had taken place. Genesis 1 verse 2 and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep the fountains of the great deep were broken up for Noah and he enters again. So you see, Adam was put at the end of a long period and there had been a catastrophe happened and he was there to replenish the earth. And not only so, but to subdue it. I'd like to give you one or two references to this word subdue because it's not so often uh, considered. Will you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 9 Verse 18. 2 Chronicles, chapter 9, verse 18. Yes. And there were six steps to the throne with a footstool of gold. It's that word footstool. The word subdue literally means to tread down. And here it enters into the word footstool. You know, being made a footstool of his feet means that you've been subdued. And you will find that it, it is translated bondage in Nehemiah. And it is the word used in Joshua, the 18th chapter, which I think we must include just to see for ourselves. What is involved in this commission to Adam? Eighteen one. The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there and the land was subdued before them. And it was a subduing, wasn't it? The description of the subduing of that land is so terrific that many a person has said they cannot believe it to be given by God for the extermination of the Canaanites 
is always a great difficulty in the minds of so many of us. Why was that word used when man was put upon the earth? Why was he said to put, not only to dress the garden, that's in the next chapter, but to keep it, and that again means to guard against an enemy. Because there was an enemy all the time that was in view, and man was put there in connection with that enemy and the working out of the great conflict, the redemptive work of God, all starting here with this one man. In the Septuagint version, the Greek word is found in, I'll give you two passages in the New Testament, so that you shall see that it's carried over. Matthew, the 20th chapter, this is still the word subdue, Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. That's the word subdue, tread down. And again in 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 3, you've got again this stress. 1 Peter 5, verse 3. Neither be as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. Not being lords over God's heritage, treading and trampling them down. But then you see, this story of Genesis is all the time not the story of Genesis, the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of a conflict. There's no start given to it so far as the first chapter of Genesis is concerned. We don't know what took place in those ages before man. We've got hints in the Bible that there was a world that was ruled by angelic powers. Otherwise, you see in Hebrews chapter 2 when it says, He hath not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak to angels. Well, that's got no sense in it if angels never had a power at all. And you get hints in the scriptures that there was a world that was ruled by angelic powers and failed. And some of those angelic powers have so sided with evil that they are spoken of as the devil and his angels right through to the last book of the Bible. And one of the things we have to learn is that we are living in a battleground. This very world in which we live is a battleground. We've never known one minute of peace, not true peace. We were born into a world that was in the midst of a battle. It's going on now and it will go on until he rides forth, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and puts an end to it. Never will be. That groan of creation will go on until he comes who's right it is. That helps us to realise that there are many things that we have that worry us and puzzle us. But if we're living in a battlefield, we shall go without provision sometimes because the enemy will intercept. We shall find our communications cut and we shall say we pray unto a God who doesn't hear. All those things will be experienced by us. We shall go barging along in the blackout and bruise ourselves as we stumble along because there's a war on. It's good to face the fact and not shut our eyes to it. It'll help us to realise that we have been called upon to stand fast and hold fast until he comes. 
Well now, I've had a signal that the time is nearly up. And what I want to do now is to give you a few passages. I'll give them as far as I can quickly where we get these words under his feet, which again you will see has a same, the same idea of this word to subdue. Psalm 47, verse 3. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. Isaiah 26, verse 6. Isaiah 26, verse 6. Why won't Bibles turn over quickly when you're in a hurry? Um, the foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The foot treading it down under his feet. Isaiah 28, 3. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. And then in Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we have Malachi chapter 4, Verse 3 And ye shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day. And then to close we have one reference carrying the theme on in the epistle to the Romans chapter 16 where the great conflict is seen coming to its issue. Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So that promise in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. The Lord said, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And the true seed is Christ. But we remember that all in him are right reckoned as the seed. So there's a sharing of that conflict and the sharing of that victory. Well now that means to say that we've just done a little bit in clearing the way for looking at chapter 2. Because when we come to chapter 2 we get further details concerning the composition of man and the vexed question as to the so many times has to be raised is it true that man has an immortal soul. Well, if you think he has, we must submit these scriptures before you, and if you think he hasn't, well, in either case, let's suspend our judgment till we meet together God willing next time, because next time we shall pass from this first chapter where we have the image and the likeness and the dominion, and there we shall see man formed of the dust of the earth, and the breath of life, and the things which have to do with his composition, and of course with our own. So there I leave it and pray that as we progress through this series, we shall realise how intimately interlinked the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man is. For otherwise, as we said at the beginning, if there be no man, there there be no Bible, as far as we know, and no redemption, for man is there at the last move on the part of God before the great crisis came. I'll leave it there for the time being.